Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, September 4th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Solomon's eighth address to his son conveys divine wisdom that touches on topics such as debt, diligence, and deception. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's also the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be here. So we get started this morning, Pastor Denzer. Let's talk just about the book of Proverbs in general. The question of context doesn't apply quite the same as it does in other types of literature that we've got in the scriptures. Proverbs is wisdom literature. We've seen a good sampling of it by this point. What do we need to know about the book of Proverbs, wisdom literature as a whole, any introductory material that will help us with the first part of Proverbs chapter six today? Sure. We all love to take little Bible verses and memorize them and take them out of context and abuse them a little bit. Uh, The good news about Proverbs, I suppose, is it's probably the best book to do that. You have the best chance of using them in the right sense, since it is kind of a collection of wise sayings, uh, and they don't necessarily flow in a logical uh, method, you know, building uh, one proverb upon the previous and building on to the next one. On the other hand, there definitely is a little bit of structure and, and some connections that could be made from proverb to proverb. Uh, and this is part of a whole section on father's wisdom to his son. There's a couple of these actually in the book of Proverbs. This one's nestled uh, in between two sections on adultery, which might seem like the much more serious matter to teach your child. Although I think maybe a way to understand that is at the at the heart of, of the real big sins, the real big failures, the things that can really shipwreck your whole life are many smaller choices, smaller matters where we can be foolish and it can have great ramifications too. And in fact, foolish in some things tends to mean and indicate that you may be foolish on the big things as well. Uh, Jesus says something similar when he says, uh, if you've been entrusted with the little things and you can't handle them, how in the world do we uh, entrust you with the true riches, right? I think there's a way in which this whole section as the the, the lesser things uh, fits nestled in between uh, two really big matters of adultery and, and faithfulness uh, and dealings with women uh, for this uh, for Solomon's son, where we can see the little things matter and give an indication of how you'll also treat the bigger things. Hmm. Yeah. On on the one hand, it's almost a bit of a a reprieve as you've been reading through the book of Proverbs. That is one of the features that especially stands out as these first several chapters move on is that there is a lot of a talk of adultery. And and so you get almost a a reprieve from that. You get to talk about something else because that's not the most comfortable topic to talk about. And yet I think you're right that here we get to see those smaller matters, and yet faithfulness in those smaller matters is important so that we would be faithful in the the larger matters. And, and again, putting all of this in the context of what wisdom truly is, that we're not only talking about the matter of right behavior and treating my neighbor in a, in a way that is faithful and loving and that will lead to a blessing in this life. It's not just a matter of that right behavior, but that true wisdom does start with the fear of the Lord. That would be the biggest matter that we're talking about in the book of Proverbs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that extends out, uh, whichever metaphor you want to use, either it bears its fruit in, in the life mm-hmm. of love and good works for the Christian, or, or it branches out into, into the smallest matters and, and permeates the Christian being. And, and that's what Jesus himself says, right? The, the righteous tree bears righteous fruit, uh, that you start at the heart of the matter, and then it, it works its way out to all the little details and every finger and every, every appendage mm-hmm. that we have. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text then. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it. it. There are a couple of natural breaks, I think, but I'll read all of it at once and then we'll come back and look at it piece by piece. So Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. 
My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That is the text for today, Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19. Pastor Denzer, it seems that verses 1 through 5 address the first topic, which is laid out in that very first verse, the matter of putting up security for your neighbor or giving your pledge for a stranger. Uh, well, what exactly is Solomon talking about here? What's the situation he's envisioning? It seems to be talking about kind of signing, co-signing alone, I guess, in the most practical uh, modern day connection to it. Uh, it's into a business dealing and a business dealing that leaves you at fault or leaves you holding the bag at the end of the day. And, uh, and that is a problem if it's with your neighbor. You, uh, you don't have control over them. And in fact, it kind of it builds from neighbor to stranger in first one. Uh, you start to realize this is not necessarily somebody I can trust. Uh, who knows what I'll be left with. Uh, the point of it being, you should not be in this situation in the first place, son. Uh, uh, and and that's so it's kind of dual purpose. One to say, how do you? What do you do if you end up in this bad situation? Get out as fast as you can, but but more importantly, avoid it in the first place. Mm, right. So just I mean a pretty straight up warning. It, maybe it's it's worth at least spending a little time. What's the what's the picture that Solomon's painting here? What's the imagery that he uses to convey this message to his son? It's a trap, right? Yeah. And uh, and you're caught in it, uh, and you're not going to be able to get out. And in fact, it's it's so it, it's so uh, important, so so devastating to you that that you can't even sleep on this. You've got to do it right now. And uh, mm-hmm. you're like you're like the you're like the deer that is in the trap, or or sees the lion around you and realizes there's probably three more ready to pounce on me. I got to run. Or the bird uh, that uh, that notices that the the bird catcher is right in uh, beside him. He's got to fly away now. There's maybe a positive side to this too. Is is uh, the principle that your word is your bond uh, can really be drawn from this. If you're you are snared by the words of your mouth, it says you're caught by the words of your mouth. What does that that say? It doesn't even enter into Solomon's mind that he could just default on this loan or that he could just say, "Well, I don't know that guy. Uh, no, I think that I I don't think this really is a contract." No. Since you've entered into it and you've promised it, you've got to live up to it. It's, it, it isn't even a question of whether you're going to do it or not. And that's why uh, if you are responsible for it, you better buy out of it now. Hmm. Uh, that that might be a good example of what we're talking about, where the faithfulness in the smaller things leads to bigger and bigger things. So the, the matter of your own word, this is just a, a given for Solomon that you're going to keep your word. Well, be careful with where your word takes you, lest you fall into this trap, this trap being an economic one. It, and and again, I mean, it, it can build from there. We, we can see how if we are careless with our words, where we end up being put... Our, put in situations such as this one and even bigger ones we could imagine where that first small unwise decision leads to greater and greater consequences. 
Yeah, it says in the verse uh, from the previous chapter that uh, the the wicked person dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly he's led astray. Great folly we get, but but the lack of discipline, right? There, there's a progression building in that single verse, and then we we kind of see the exact same thing uh, brought out in these verses. Hmm. I think that that matter of discipline, self control, continues as as Solomon goes with more warnings against his son. And, and and this is a, Jesus does this at places where he will, for example, point to say the lilies of the field or the birds of the air and invite his disciples to learn something from here. Solomon here uh, goes much smaller. He chooses an ant as a teacher. What What is it that the sluggard needs to learn from the ant? Love that word. And, and it's fun, by the way, to trace all of these various terms for the for the bad guy. Uh, <laughs> Proverbs. Uh, that's maybe another way to look at the book to see what the sluggard's like, to see what the fool and the various kinds of fools are, uh, and then to be well. I don't know. We don't want to be on uh, on watch for these people to try and diagnose them when we see them. Might not be the kindest way to look for our neighbors, but 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 also to be just to be wary that that these types of people and these tendencies in ourselves even uh, span all these generations. And, and that's why Proverbs, I think, is still one of the favorite books. It, it still applies. People still exhibit all of these characteristics. The ant is, uh, is industrious, and this is something that comes into Aesop's fables. It comes into many other places, and, and I think people who've studied or even just sat and watched their ant farm, like, why is that a thing? Because it is fascinating to watch them work even if they don't have a queen, even if it's just these worker ants that you get in the little tube, right? They build the tunnels. They they fix them if they collapse. They they go right to work and, and don't wait for anything. And that is what he's trying to teach his son by the example of the ant, uh, to have some self-discipline, to be self-motivated. Uh, and and in, a, in a kind of fanciful way, as we said, it even kind of becomes a, a, a parable or a a fable in Aesop, the ant is the industrious one while the grasshopper is kind of lazy and having his fun and ends up in trouble when wintertime comes. That's what his son ought to do. He ought to take preparation for the future. He ought to be industrious now. He ought to have self-discipline. Right. So take take us a little deeper into that word than sluggard. I mean, you, you mentioned, and we do see this in the book of Proverbs, where a, a character, I've used that term before, a character shows up multiple times. It's not quite like a narrative, but there is the there are these figures that will appear. The sluggard, what what should we be understanding with that term sluggard? The the lazy bones, the the guy who who's doing nothing. He's slow. He's he, he's always got time to put it off for tomorrow. Uh, if he's clever or industrious in anything, it's in coming up with complicated plans to maybe not do the work. Uh, all of those things apply here and uh, and throughout the book of Proverbs that this is the characteristic of this this lazy person. Um, here here there's plenty of overlap with Greek. Uh, opinions uh, with with all of the wisdom of the ancient world, which is to say, you don't want to be a lazy person, or even Ben Franklin, right? Uh, never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. I think he said that. Uh, all of these proverbs, biblical or unbiblical, are are familiar to us, and uh, it's wisdom that holds true in all cases. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, the early bird gets the worm. Maybe that applies to uh, that. Might have been Ben Franklin. He, he probably was, said a lot of them. You're probably right. My grandfather right. is the kind of guy who always used to uh, always used to say these things, and you never knew if it was from the Bible or if he just made it up. Or um, that's what makes people uh, makes old wisdom uh, valuable to us. But now, there's there's something kind of interesting here. You know, Christians traditionally don't know what to think about insurance or or planning for the future or hoarding. That would definitely be considered a sin. Uh, so, you know, I think there's, maybe we'd want to back off and say, now, hold on, is this really such a wonderful, uh, good work? Isn't it testing God to say, I've got a, to plan for the future? Uh, doesn't the Lord take care of the future? Isn't that actually what Jesus wants us to learn from the lilies? Hmm. And I think there's a way in which, which talking about the ant and, and saying, learn this lesson from the ant, consider her ways and be wise, really 
corrects that uh, because because what you notice about the ant is it's doing something that's very appropriate to itself. You know, I don't know if Solomon understood what we do now that ants are this almost a community organism, uh, but everything it does is appropriate to what it ought to do. And, and I think that's a fine way for us as Christians to think about the things that lie underneath us. You know, where do we have free will, for example? This is a question that the confessions take up. It says, in matters above us, you know, the ant doesn't really know what's going on with us, probably. And likewise, we are so much like the ant compared to the Lord. Uh, in matters above us, we do not have free will. We don't get to choose God. He's not waiting on us to make a decision for him and any of that. Uh, no, he's he's definitely the one who has agency, and, and thank God for that, because he, he, by his spirit, works faith in us and brings us to faith in Christ. But in things below us, you know, even as, as uh, the ancient Greek uh, philosophers would have said, right, the matters that have to do with taking a wife or uh, or uh, you know, choosing where I go to school, what am I going to eat for breakfast, and uh, and what am I going to do for a living? These are matters where we do have freedom. These are where our choices ought to be wise. And, and here's where um, here here's where the, kind of these famous examples of putting God to the test come in, right? Uh, if if you have a, a history test coming up in school, it is not testing God or putting him to the test. Uh, to study for it. In fact, that's the right thing to do. If you show up on that day and say, well, I trust God will get me through it, and I didn't even crack my book all weekend, uh, that is actually putting God to the test. Likewise, if we're going to be appropriate to our vocations, we're going to work. We're going to do what's called upon us. We're going to serve in our vocations. Uh, We're going to plan for our family's well-being now and in the future. Uh, but we're not going to live as if uh, as if we were saving our souls through this, and we're not going to live as if money is actually what defines our life and, and defines our, our righteousness. I think it was Pastor Brian Wolfmuller who taught me this, that there is a difference between worry and work. And we tend to conflate those two, I think, and we, we shouldn't. So when Jesus talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field in Matthew chapter six, he's talking about worry. That's what we shouldn't do, but we should work. Christians should work. That's the matter below. To use, I think that's a helpful distinction to, to distinguish between the matters above and the matters below. And the matters below, we work. The matter above, that's the worry. We leave that to God. And I think the temptation for us is always to reverse the two. We we tend to we tend to like to worry, and then we don't end up working. So we end up being lazy, and yet we worry about that. When we should stop worrying and keep working, which is, and I I know I struggle with this myself as to how to actually because it's, and I don't know where this comes from, but I I get the feeling if I'm working too hard, that means I'm I'm worrying. Well. Well, no, work. And I think the way that you put it with with the ant, you know, doing what is given to you. Um, how, how did you doing something appropriate to itself? What what is the vocation that God has given you? Where has God placed you? Uh, the it's in the the small catechism in the the fifth sheet part under confession, where where Luther invites us to examine ourselves according to the Ten Commandments in those places, you know, are you a father or a mother, a husband or a wife, a worker? Where are you? Examine yourself in those places. Like the ant, do your work in those places. Do the work, but leave the worry to God. Well said. And and another part of it, just not to lose it, is the self-discipline of the ant, uh, yes. Solomon sees it, right? Without any chief, any officer, any ruler, right? It's not because the boss is telling me what to do. There's there's self-motivation in the ant. And, and I think for us as Christians, the self-motivation that we find is easier to see if we're looking at our lives according to our vocations rather than just uh, the, the quest for something that's far off in the future, like more money, bigger house, more success. These are the things that lead us into into idols uh, and and really to despise the work and to think only of this uh, this this fleeting reward for the work rather than taking joy in in what the work that is appropriate to us has to give. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, work, and maybe just one more thought on work. Work was given to Adam before the fall into sin. God gave Adam work in Genesis chapter two to work the garden and keep it. Work is good. It's the worry that gets in the way. That's that's the trouble. Now, Pastor Denzer, the ant is the example that Solomon uses, 
and and I'm just looking in my Lutheran study Bible here, there's a note down in the study notes that the Septuagint, so if you've got your Lutheran study Bible and you see the the letters LXX in, in capital letters, that's 70 in Roman numerals. Oh man, I'm going to Roman numerals, but that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's it's the Septuagint. Apparently has some some extra verses here in verse eight, and it it talks not only about an ant but a bee. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I can. Uh, this, by the way, is also in another uh, a part in well, not quite the Bible in Sirach or the Book of Ecclesiasticus, part of the Apocrypha, uh, which is a kind of early second century BC work. Uh, it has just this short little uh, little comment. The bee is small among flying creatures, and her product is the origin of sweet things. So it's kind of contrasting the the smallness of the bee with the greatness of what it accomplishes, honey. Uh, here's a little bit longer, this section from the Septuagint that is not in the Hebrew and usually then doesn't come into our Bibles. That's probably because it, it kind of reflects a, a Greek way of thinking, which indicates to us that this may be an addition that wasn't original to Solomon. But here it is, and I'll give it to you in English. Or go to the bee and learn how industrious it is and how seriously it does its work. Whose products kings and commoners use for health? It's desired by all and respected. Although it's weak physically, by honoring wisdom it has obtained distinction. Now, I'm not sure if this is to be considered the word of God as we consider the rest of Proverbs, but it is quite nice wisdom. And and uh, and you see it drawing on a few comments here. One, that uh, the bee does serious work. It's, it's not a lazy bones by any means. Interesting that its work is used by kings and commoners alike. Honey is, is nature's perfect food. Uh, you can eat it and it doesn't need a refrigeration or anything. It's it's delicious. Everybody knows this. Uh, but also, it's uh, it, it comes out of wisdom. That's that's kind of the, the the way that Greeks thought about the bees. Is they're small. They don't seem to have a whole lot of uh, much going for them, right? Except they they do something wise. Uh, they they talk together. They they work together. I suppose we would say now, with all of our knowledge of of the communal nature of bees and ants, they have a society, right? They're, they're discussing with each other. They have a division of labor. They have all of these kind of, we would call them intelligence almost, uh, that seems to be working for them. That's why their uh, products have such distinction. Uh, so I think, I think that's kind of interesting. And then to try and take lessons from that into our lives too. I think that and I, I don't have that same translation in front of me, but the the one that stood out to me, given what we've already talked about, was that the product of the bees, the honey, is used by all kings and commoners alike. And and the bee to try to tie that in with what we're saying about the ant, the bee is simply doing what it has been given to do, which is to make honey. And in that seemingly small act, just a very basic thing, this is what bees do. Bees make honey. Still in that service, they influence everybody. It doesn't seem like a big thing. And yet, because it is what that bee has been given to do by God, then it makes a big difference, which I think is a, a wise thing for us to keep in mind too. Those things that we've been given to do by God in our various vocations, whether it is a, a pastor, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, they may not seem like big things. A son obeying his father doesn't seem like a big thing to the world. And, and yet it really does make a big difference. It, it I mean, it not only influences that family, it it influences all of society, in fact. And to see that in the B, and again, whether or not that's, I don't know, should we, we probably shouldn't say this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, maybe. Uh, but but that same application, I think, that transfers over that in these small things that God has given us to do, he is at work in the world for for all, big and small alike. Yeah, I think this is. I think this one's Ben Franklin again, right? That a penny saved is a penny earned. So, so the little bit does add up, and uh, that's true in the positive, but it's also true in the negative. That's kind of what this last part here in verse ten and eleven is. You know, a little sleep, a little slumber. You can imagine the the sun, the who's who's tempted to be a lazy bones here, or the grasshopper in the Aesop fable, right? Oh, come on, it's just a little nap. Everybody needs self care. Everybody needs rest, right? But, but but that adds up, you know, a couple little sleeps and you've added up to a big sleep. Uh, 
uh, and and pretty soon, like it says, poverty is going to sneak up on you like some kind of robber, like some kind of uh, drifter and, uh, and an armed man. You know what they're there for. They're there to loot you. Hmm. So the the idea that a little bit adds up to a lot that's a that's a positive thing and a negative thing here in Solomon's imagery that idea of, you know you can just kind of picture it there in verse 10 a little sleep a little slumber some like you're hitting the snooze button over and over again in Ooh, the morning charged yeah <laughs> some something like that and and pretty soon you know it's it's you should have been at work 30 minutes ago and and again there's that that very uh, down to earth very practical wisdom in in a small thing that points to the bigger things as, as we've been drawing out. And maybe we'll pick some of that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take that short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 4th, and we are studying Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. We've got Pastor Sean Denzer with us. He serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's also the chaplain for the International Center there in St. Louis. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we're looking at these verses, particularly 1 through 11. And several times in the course of our conversation, we've mentioned, you know, Ben Franklin said something like that, or this shows up in Aesop's fables, or Mark Twain was well known for these little aphorisms and things like that. So what, why is it that if Aesop or Ben Franklin or Mark Twain or your wise grandfather can know this stuff without being Christian, what's it doing in the Bible? Why... And why do Christians need it uniquely? What's different about the way Christians take it and use it? Yeah, uh, you know, this is a part of the Bible where you think Benjamin Franklin probably would have kept it, Mark Twain too, and and I imagine it made it into Thomas Jefferson's very much edited and abridged version of the Bible. So that makes us a little uncomfortable. Um, I have to admit, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes reading these things, or or even looking at what Christ says and saying, all this means is is here's some good business practices. Keep these tips in your back pocket. Um, at, at the same time, though, I think it's helpful for us not to, maybe the word is to over-spiritualize or to to get lazy because we know there's great spiritual truths, right? We, we Christians know the most important thing in the world, that Christ is risen, that he's redeemed us by his blood, that, that uh, the Lord has eternal life for us. Uh, that, that he's accomplished all things. We we have the most important truth of all. And there's a way in which we we let that make us lazy in all other ways, or or knowing that it's okay to be second rate in everything else. And I don't think that's the way the Lord intends it at all. Again, if we if we have a great tree that's been renewed uh, because Christ himself is giving us his nourishment, then the result is not that you have a branch that's kind of, I mean, who cares about the branches as long as you got the tree? No, Jesus says the great branch grows and, and, and the fruit of that tree endures. So, uh, sorry, not to pick on Christian movies, right? But everybody knows if it's a Christian movie or if it's a Christian song, that often that makes up for it not being as good usually. Sadly, that seems to be the way people act these days. Um, and I suppose there's a way where where we could fall into the same trap here in the matter of wisdom and smarts. Well, I don't know if this person is any good. I don't know if he's worth entering into business to or, or taking up a job with, but he's a Christian, and that's all that matters. It's not an either or. It, it, it Really, to fit together with the with truth, just as we've talked about our, our attitudes and actions— to be faithful and truthful in the little things matters also for those who are diligent and careful in the greatest of all truths, the gospel itself. 
so so in that in that perspective, uh, we don't want Christians who are just uh, gospel smart, you know, but don't know how to do anything else in life. No, we we actually believe this truth. If we're people of the truth, it'll pervade every corner of our life as well, and, and that's why it's worth. Uh, taking the time to read what Solomon had to say as well. No, I, I think I think you're exactly right, and I appreciate the the reminder about like like you were saying that Christians should seek after excellence in all things. And I, I mean, I'm I'm reminded of the lists that Luther puts in the Catechism in the first article of the Creed, and then the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, the the matter of the created gifts of God in the first article, and the daily bread in the fourth petition. And, and you know, if you've, if you've got these memorized, just think of all the things that are listed there as gifts of God. The, the first article's list is, is shorter, so it's and it's got ands in it, so it's a bit easier to memorize, at least in my experience. Clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. But the, the fourth petition, and I'm going to have to look this one up, I think that one, that one is so much more is helpful because it's got so much more. It includes things like devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather. Those those kinds of things. These are God's gifts to us. He He cares enough about us to give them to us. Shouldn't we seek to be excellent in these gifts and to use them well wisely, as as Solomon is is giving it to us here, for the sake. Of our neighbor, this is this is a part of the Christian life. It's it's not like like you said, we're not just. I mean, the gospel is the greatest treasure, but we make use of that as renewed creatures. The fruit that is born, being connected to Jesus, the vine. I mean, and that does it extends into every aspect of our life, and so we should care about these things. These things do belong in the scriptures, and. And our unique Christian use of them, I, I think, is the starting place that we have. To take it back to the first chapter of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's what makes it different. Even if it it ends up being you know worldly wisdom that others know, Christians make use of it at that beginning, and that does make a pretty big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing the one thing needful, Christ yeah. Jesus, doesn't make us ambivalent or hostile to all of the other things. Um, we, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But all those other things, when they're added to us, we make good use of those also. And, and you're right, usually for the good of our neighbor, for the good of those Christians around us, and, and even those who are not Christians. And you said another thing that's so helpful to bring us back to that kind of catchphrase that sets Proverbs off, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're right, Socrates and, and every great and wise thinker of every nation has come up with these sorts of truths, and in fact, in some cases, the same truths. Uh, and they're truths of the law. And and we're, I don't think we should be surprised to find that other people get those sorts of truths correct from time to time, especially you know the more time they've put into it. Socrates is rightly considered to be one of those wise men of all times. And I think he did pretty well when it comes to the law. His, his goal from the Oracle of Delphi was to know himself, right? And he set out to do that. At the end of his life, of course, he came to the conclusion that he didn't quite know if he was a beast or a man. And then he went and uh, sacrificed to the rooster god quick before he died. Hmm. You know, and that's not a very exciting uh, ending, really, for a Christian. But I, but I think it does show you how far you can get on the law alone. He got very far. He definitely learned what was wise for men. He also found out uh, how much of a beast he was uh, as a fallen man, and he didn't have what 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 we actually need, which is the rescue of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we have the greater truth, which sadly it doesn't seem like Socrates had. Uh, mm -hmm. But 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 we can appreciate everything that he has gotten right. He's gotten right because that's the law of God, and that's the way it ought to be. And and that's why when you and I read this, Pastor, we find ourselves accused by how lazy we are, by how dumb we are, by how uh, worthless and good for nothing, as we're about to hear, we tend to be, um, Lord, have mercy on us. The law is doing its work when it convicts us and teaches us the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. We will also move on to the gospel.
That's right. Yeah, this, I mean, definitely the the laziness, it, it, it convicts. Now we meet, so the sluggard, that's the, the laziness. We meet another character in verse 12, the worthless person, the wicked man. Who? Which character in the book of Proverbs is this? How does he compare to the sluggard? What? How does Solomon characterize him? He is good for nothing. I like that. He's kind of an empty, empty guy. Uh, just just can't do anything. Actually, this word shows up in the New Testament also. It's the word Belial, and this is used actually by St. Paul to speak about the devil in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is verse 15, and Paul says, uh, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's very interesting. This person is, is, is utterly worthless. Uh, and and the fact that Paul connects that term with Satan and talks about an unbeliever, I think, gives us an idea of where this kind of worthlessness comes from, right? Uh, uh, there's a deep worthlessness to the person who doesn't know Christ and who refuses to know God. Uh, this is kind of the fool of Psalms, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and, and he's going to end up getting his just desserts in the end. Hmm. Take us into some of the imagery that Solomon gives us. He got winks with eyes, signals with feet, points with his finger. It all comes from a perverted heart. Uh, what what is Solomon conveying about this? And and again, just as a reminder, what is he telling his son to do concerning this man? This is fantastic. This is I mean, watch out for him, right? And and don't be like him, uh, and and avoid him. Uh, but but I think all of these little. Uh, bodily parts and, and, the, and the way that his whole body is sending messages that are mixed and confused. This, this shows up in every movie con man, uh, in, in every uh, uh, untrustworthy person, right? There's something in their eyes. There's uh, the way they talk. Uh, uh, it, it reveals what is wicked inside, right? And that's what he says. They have a perverted heart that desires evil. And, and schemes it, and, uh, and they're continually then sowing discord. Um, Jesus himself says this. He says this in Mark chapter 7. He says, out of the heart flows all sorts of evil murder, and, and he names a big long laundry list. And the point is, these things don't come in from the outside, right? It's, it's, not, that, uh, it's not that we accidentally start winking at people, and then pretty soon it makes us evil. No, it's the other way around. It's it's our evilness leads us to trick people. Uh, and, and and what is the particular sin, the particular destructive thing uh, that he's trying to avoid? It's that last part that he spreads conflict, that he sows discord, that he is devastating uh, for the reputations and the life and the community and the organization of everything around him, right? Uh, I think of like the start of World War One, right? That that oh, some yeah. punk kid terrorist, you know, accidentally succeeds in shooting that one Duke that all of his buddies uh, failed to do, and it and it sparks this powder keg uh, that that starts World War One and throws the whole world into the meat grinder. I know that's drastically oversimplified, but that is that is the way this sort of person is. Uh, Good for nothing seems like he's fairly harmless, right? But but uh, Solomon's trying to show how how this is very evil, right? He he's not the guy who's throwing the punches; he's the guy behind the scenes who's who's running the propaganda, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's going on, and, and that's where he that's where this Belial is uh, is is much more insidious as a result. Yeah, maybe maybe like the, and I, I know we've used this in in the book of Judges, but the like a mob boss almost, or or maybe like in a James Bond movie that when when as he's trying to unravel, and again this is a, an oversimplification, but as he's trying to unravel who's behind it all, it's it's that guy, the the top boss, who isn't getting his hands dirty per se with all of the the killing and the messiness that happens in the movie, but he's behind it all, he's sowing that discord, and I think I think. Generally, what happens is that person thinks that by just being above the fray, he can avoid any of the discord that he's sowing. But verse fifteen shatters any sort of any sort of illusion like that. That calamity comes upon that guy too. He's going to be broken as well. Yeah, and beyond healing, um, mm-hmm. this is very much like the Psalms that tries to urge us. Uh, the Wisdom Psalm urge us to look beyond 
uh, just a moment into the future, right? The fact that, of course, these people will get their comeuppance, that, uh, that nothing is going to go well with them. The worst thing you could possibly do is think uh, jealous thoughts about them, that I, I wish I were like them. I, I should just I should just give up this God thing and I should join in with them because they seem to be being so successful Ugh, that that would be throwing your whole life away. So yeah, I, I like your description too. The, the mastermind behind it, we still say that he has his fingers in every, in every corner of the operation. That's it's exactly the, the very vivid bodily image that is used here. And, and, and again, to, to remember what our Lord said in Mark seven, that it's out of the evil heart. It's out of, uh, the original sin-driven heart of mankind, that the most evil things happen. And, uh, and, and often it's not the, it, it's not the straight-up murder uh, that is the most insidious and devastating, but it's, it's all of this more subtle craftiness. And, uh, and, and since St. Since Paul called Satan the Belial as well, I, I think it's helpful to see how, how his tactics in the garden, which are the same tactics he uses today, are these same kind of trickiness, uh, a deceit, uh, uh, a wicked a wicked heart and mind that he has that leads him to, to, to sow discord, to, to by his words, unsettle us from the, from the bedrock of, of God's word, which is truthful. As the text continues into verse 16, you get this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Just in terms of the structure of that verse, well, which is it, Pastor Denzer? Is it is it six things or seven things that the Lord doesn't like? Yeah, Proverbs does it a few times with different uh, numbers, but, but this one's significant because seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. Um, there are seven days and the Lord is complete on the seventh day. He couldn't have left it at the sixth. Well, this is kind of the opposite of that. Uh, the Lord said it was good and very good here. It's evil and very wicked, right? It's an abomination. So so this is perfectly abominable. And, and, and what I love about this is not only is it going to kind of get worse and worse, but it's actually going to build up a case with six things uh, that is then consummately uh, seen in the seventh thing. So there is a there's a sense of escalation as we're going to go through this list then. So so start start taking us through it. It it starts with again we've got this this image of the the various parts of the body is how this list gets started. Yeah, and this is similar to the section before. It's one thing to talk about characteristics and dispositions but those are so abstract mm. and i think the way he the way solomon has lined this up with the parts of the body is not only good hebrew poetry but it's it's very vivid and i think very effective for us too so haughty eyes this is arrogance right uh, these are all the characteristics of of uh, abominable things that the lord hates arrogance lying murder scheming uh, evil, uh, rushing into evil headlong, and then bearing false witness. Uh, in the center of these is murder. I suppose that's the the only thing that's a flat out external sin. All of the others happen in the heart, happen in the mouth, uh, happen in the attitudes of a person, but they're connected to the whole parts of the body, right? The eyes see, the eyes look down on others. That's where er the seat of arrogance is. The tongue is lying. We have James and his whole commentary on that in the New Testament. The hands murder. Uh, um, uh, that's always, I think, the number five, fifth commandment happens to be uh, if you hold out your hand. So that's a clever way to remember that. Uh, the heart, desperately wicked, is the thing that the seat of the scheming, right? And the feet, right, are ready to go. They're just itching and twitching, ready to, ready to jump into action uh, to, to, to propel us into evil that we won't be able to get away from. Think about Psalm 1, right? It has that wonderful progression from uh, let me not uh, walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the, in the presence of sinners or sit right down and make myself comfortable in the place of the wicked. Um, but all of these go together, right? If you if you have eyes and a tongue and hands and heart and feet, you've got a whole body here, right? Oh, sorry, I left one out. And that's the false witness, the lying of of the breath, right? It's like they inhale and they exhale lies constantly, right? They take in one thing, the truth, and when they spit it out, it's a totally different thing. Uh, but all of this builds a whole person, right? And that's what we have at the end. 
and and what is the what is the great sin that is being brought out in this abomination? It's the same thing that we had in the previous one. This conflict spreading, sowing discord among everyone. So so your rot just doesn't make you filthy, but it spreads to everyone around you and and infects the whole life, uh, infects yeah. the whole community. That's that's what Solomon is saying is is horrible. He wants his son to avoid it at all costs. Certainly not to be this person but also that God himself finds it to be abominable. Again, I think to point out something that we pointed out at the beginning, how in each of these little things, a little unfaithfulness adds up to a lot of unfaithfulness. I mean, I think, so if I, if I think, oh, it's just my eyes that are arrogant right here, that, that can't be that bad. Or it's just my, just my hands that have messed up or just my, just my breath. My breath isn't that that bad. And yet look at, at how all, I like the way that, that you phrased it, that, that when you have all these things, what do you have? You have, you have a whole person and that whole person, it, that's the, that's the ultimate climax of this, of this list of seven. But again, just notice how small it starts and yet how it builds and builds and builds. And again, here in the, in the very negative sense, lest we fall into the, the small things that Pretty soon they just build up and build up, and all of a sudden we find ourselves at the end, at the climax, and we're the one sowing discord. Yes, I agree, Pastor Desert. One of the things, uh, is, uh, just looking at the the text as a whole, it, this is, and I, I suppose this is this is true in many places in the Book of Proverbs, but it it does. This is presenting the negative side of the picture for the most part. You've got the sluggard, you've got the worthless person, you've got the one sowing discord. We've seen how the little things build up in in big ways for negative things. We've got about six minutes here. Uh, let's try to look at it from the opposite side, given the rest of what we have in the scriptures, from the, the way that little things add up positively. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wisdom comes not just from hearing something and repeating it, but it comes from observation too. Uh, and that and that is how negative learning and negative reinforcement, I suppose you could call it, uh, is valuable to us. Uh, to watch and to mark is, is commented on frequently, especially in the wisdom psalms. Watch uh, the end of that man because his way will be peace because he's a perfect man. Watch the wicked uh, and, and avoid them. Uh, we have the negative here, especially. Solomon is is an old man by now, presumably, at least old enough to have children. And this seems to be a mark of wisdom if you've ever known anybody older than yourself, if you've ever had a father or a grandfather. They're, they're not shy about giving their advice. Uh, uh, and often their advice is their own mistakes or the mistakes they've seen in others. Uh, this is not biblical knowledge at all, but a lot of people make the point that you can either learn from your mistakes by experience or you can try and learn from the mistakes by others, which is far better. Uh, and that's what Solomon here is laying out in the wisdom, is to see these things. Now, the reason I think Proverbs can connect to us so well is because we've all observed this. We've observed this in two places, in others, but also in ourselves. We've seen our own sin. And if we've done that, we've, we've done the right thing, which is to say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, to recognize our own failures, to recognize at the very least our temptations uh, toward these false things. And if we see it in somebody else, we should not be so arrogant as to think, think that their temptation is in some way not common to mankind. That's what Paul himself says in the New Testament. Uh, what I think is perhaps positive about it is uh, there are ways for us to consider our temptations and to avoid them. Oh. And it is not uh, falling into works righteousness to say it's good for us to avoid sin, uh, to discipline our flesh, uh, to learn from our mistakes, uh, and to do better next time. In fact, to want to do that is something that the Holy Spirit works in us through repentance and the forgiveness of sins, uh, the desire uh, to, to live a godly life, to, the desire to walk in wisdom and not to go back like a dog to its vomit, to the, to the falseness again. Pastor Dinser, with about two minutes here, uh, again, thinking about this text, there's been a lot of, of law, a lot of 
opportunity for us to reflect on not only where we see this in others, but where we see it in ourselves. How does this text here and and in the context, the fullness of scripture, how does this point us toward our Savior Jesus? The Lord came to save all sorts of sinners. He came to save these sinners. He shed his blood for real sins. And and if we look at our lives uh, just in these few verses, I'm sure there are so many things that we have to say. That's describing me. I'm the sluggard. I've been the lazy bones. I've been the wicked person, at least engaging if some, if not all, of these abominable actions and attitudes. But our Lord Jesus Christ came to to save real sinners. He he didn't come to save imaginary sinners. Uh, He didn't come to save... Uh, people who just did societally bad things. He came to save people who really were dumb and foolish. Uh, And he came to save us while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for us to improve, to take Solomon's advice. Uh, In fact, if you know anything about the history of Solomon, he himself did not always seem to take his own wisdom in hand and make use of it. Uh, the adultery ones are the most ironic, I suppose, since he had so many wives. And uh, and, the, and there's often been question in the past, too, whether in the end Solomon stayed in the faith or whether he himself fell. Uh, but that didn't stop our Lord Jesus from shedding his blood for Solomon and for everyone. Uh, the Lord's atonement is astonishing, maybe as astonishing as the depth of our sins that's revealed by the law, even this wonderful positive wisdom from Proverbs. Uh, the Lord died for the worst of people. Uh, that is not just wisdom. That is something that comes from uh, from outside of this world. It's not something that Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or or Mark Twain or any wise person would come up with the fact that Christ would come on, take our human flesh and suffer for those who in no way deserved it. Uh, Those who are in fact abominable and under God's wrath and hatred. And then Jesus Christ comes and, and bears that hatred in our place. That's, that's the great love and, and fantastic message of the gospel that is otherworldly. It's, it's beyond all human wisdom and yet he gives it freely to us. In that, then, uh, in that greatest of truths, uh, we are glad to live uh, truthful lives before others as well. And, uh, and it is the truth of God's forgiveness that enables us to set about our tasks, whatever they are, even if they're as small as ants work, and to do it free of fear. Uh, free of anxiety for the future, uh, free of the burden of trying to redeem ourselves by these works, free, in fact, to be the best servants that we're able to be uh, for our neighbor, to make a beginning of it now, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ has answered for everything, and that the last day, finally, we'll be free from all sins, all crookedness, even the heart-deep stuff that we can't get rid of or work around in this life. Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's also the chaplain for the International Center, helping us this morning with Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.